Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Today on the news, well, we've been watching a series on Amazon called Homecoming. It stars Julia Roberts. I think this is the first TV-ish stuff she's ever done. Uh, it's a transfer of a podcast to television, and we'll be talking about that. One of our panelists is perhaps the leading expert on podcasts in, I don't know, America. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about something called curving, maybe. Uh, it's a way you get rid of somebody without ghosting them, assuming you know what ghosting is. You see, it's all going to get very complicated here. Also, Idris Elba is the sexiest man alive. Or is he? We'll talk about it all after the news. Welcome to the nose. Boy, it feels like it's been a really long week. I can't imagine why. So, but on the other hand, we're very uh, happy to be together uh, here on the nose. And when I say uh, we, uh, what I mean uh, is or are Rich Holland, uh, principal and design director at CoLab and a commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, and founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. And Nicholas Kwa is the editor and publisher of Hot Pod, a newsletter about podcasts. Uh, he knows about as much about the podcasting industry as any person alive. He's not the sexiest man alive, to the best of our knowledge. We're going to be telling you who that is in our very lowbrow first segment. Before I do that, uh, here at the top of the news, you know, we're trying to make sure we uh, promote anything we have to promote. So Carolyn and I both, plus some other people, will be involved next Tuesday at 7 p.m. at CT Improv in a night of stand-up comedy followed by a conversation about stand-up comedy with stand-up comedians. So Carolyn uh, will be there. Also, Sean Murray, who you've heard also on the news before, uh, and at least one other comedian. I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, they're all going to do stand-up, and then we're going to pull up some chairs and have a conversation about that. You are invited to come. Um, and all you have to well, you can check out I guess our Facebook page is it our Facebook page the, the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page for details about that uh, and it'll cost you all of five dollars which will go to benefit CT Improv uh, and they have a beautiful wonderful exciting theater of their own right on Asylum Street in Hartford okay so um, and oh I should also mention the following night I will be on stage at the I think I think this is true the Otterino Theater in Hartford. Uh, with Richard Plepler, the CEO of HBO. He and I will be continuing a conversation we began on stage a couple of years ago. Uh, we're going to uh, have that uh, the sort of part two uh, of that conversation. Um, and, and that's free. That's, uh, I believe, free, open to the public. Go to the Watkinson School uh, uh, webpage and you'll leave details. Of it. I should know more about this, but I just don't. Um, all right. I said it's been a long week. All right. So uh, in our highly lowbrow first segment, we are going to talk about The Sexiest Man Alive, uh, which is a designation which is given out every year by People magazine. It's like right up there with the Pulitzers and the MacArthur Grants and stuff. Uh, and then uh, Carolyn has introduced us to a new term called curving. We will explain to you what curving is and what it portends for civilization and human affairs. Uh, and uh, Nick is going to also explain to us how you're texting 
reflects your psychological state. And we'll talk about things like that. And then we all watched a series called Homecoming. It made the transfer from a podcast to a TV series starring Julia Roberts, who kind of doesn't really do TV, except she does now. Uh, and she has horrible bangs. And we'll talk about all of that. Uh, and uh, that's, so that's coming up. So here we, we have to begin here. Uh, we have to, uh, Rich, we have to dig ourselves into uh, this kind of horrible trench uh, with the sex, the sex. Well, okay. Let's start with so the sexiest man alive. We should say this year the winner, if that's the right term, the designee. I'm going with designee. Okay, is uh, Idris Elba. Yes, um, and it kind of follows. I, I'm trying. I'm, I'm giving you a gentle on ramp to this, but <laughs> you can just go flying out in the Grand Canyon for all I care. Uh, but here's my gentle on ramp. There's sort of been this. Why isn't Idris Elba blank? thing that's been going on for three or four years. Why isn't he the next Bond? Why isn't he the next Batman? Why isn't he the sexiest man alive? Why is Blake Shelton the sexiest man alive? That's who was the last person to. So finally, we have an Idris Elba answer to one of those questions. All right. It's yep. all yours. Awesome. And the, the immediate first question is, you know, why isn't the sexiest man alive less macho, right? So um, uh, That did come up in one article. It did. Yeah. And I think that he this is well-deserved. Um, I think trying to figure out, you know, if he could be everything all at once is kind of pushing it. Um, <laughs> well, we figured out last week he's too old to be James Bond. He can't be James he Bond. Is he's not too old. old to be James Bond. Well, I'm going to argue that point. All right. Well, I mean, so maybe chronologically he is. Yeah. You know, but, you know. He's 46 years old. Yeah. They need, and they need, how old was, they, da- how old was Daniel Craig? Um, way younger than that when he made the first movie. Oh, uh, I see. See, you have to make – they want three movies out of you. They don't want one movie. They want, they want to be able to milk you oh, for three on. movies. I think but I be, think he you could get be... three movies out of, yeah. out of him. Yeah. No problem. He, he looks great. Fabulous. Well, I mean, he's the sexiest man alive. Mm-hmm. Like, he's in great shape. Do you, th- do you think he's the sexiest man alive? I, I think he's like – I mean, yeah, you, for you, sure. You think I, it's, I'd be you think it's a not undeserved on Yeah, anyway. exactly. Like, I, I mean, I think there's, like, a lot of really sexy guys. I think he's, like, among them. Right. Um, I think that he is the sexiest man alive. Period. Period. The oldest person ever to become Bond was Roger Moore, and he was 45. Uh, oh, it's, so it's like, a couple years difference. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's uh, but that's the oldest ever, anyway. So <laughs> we're sort of talking about, <laughs> we're talking about wait, several wait, different wait. things at once. <laughs> Nick, get us out of this somehow, or get us out of this. <laughs> well, I'm going to actually get deeper. There is a, a, a pathway for it for there to be a one one movie um, James Bond featuring yeah. Idris Elba because George Lazenby was a one True. movie James mm. Bond, and like I would love to see Idris Elba doing a, like a version of it. But at the same time, like, well, coming to the question of like, how do you actually decide who's the sexiest man alive? If that's like an extreme a superlative for me, yeah. I would really, really love to have like some sort of reality show that actually follows the nomination and awarding process. I think I saw something online that, that other people like nominate them, like other people in Hollywood kind of like create buzz. Like, Isn't I, that how it works? I, I don't. I don't think it's like a Nate Silver kind of thing. Yeah, like, I would data. love it to be a Nate Silver kind of thing. <laughs> like, we need to break out categories and, and metrics and traits here. Right. By the way, George Lazenby was the youngest person ever to play Bond. The Wild. guy who did the one thing. Yeah. So there. Uh, I don't really care. I'm not like the commissioner of James Bond or the commissioner of the sexiest man alive yeah. or the commissioner of Batman or any of those other things. But I mean, but, but do you, you actually think it would be fun to try to quantify who's the sexiest man alive? I absolutely would. We yeah. could also have like alternative categories. Like I think John Mulaney would be a version of the sexiest man alive. I think there could be 
there, there could be so, so like, many genres. So like funniest, sexy man, sexiest man. Yeah, alive, sexy funny. It's like, like a different kind of sexy, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. yeah. There, there's uh, also like big sexy, like uh, David Harbour. That's like a very specific form of sexy. I don't know who that is. Uh, the police officer from Stranger Things. Yeah. Oh okay. Oh yeah, oh, like so. Guy. That's like he's like a like like a. Is he kind of a knuckle dragging kind of guy though? Isn't yeah, he? Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Sexiest missing link. Yes. So, so we're getting into kind of like sexy dad category, which is really oxymoronic. <laughs> yeah, that's, there really is no such thing. I don't think. Um, all right, so I, I was worried about this topic, and so um, it's certainly not the first black sexiest man mm-hmm. alive. So, I mean, it's not like he's broken some. I, it seems to me one of the interesting things to me about uh, Idris Elba is that coming out of the wire, mm-hmm. he like I, I remember my ex-wife was pretty truly o- over him but he was like a the only thing you knew about him at the end of the wire was he was this bad drug dealer guy you know who would just had this almost sort of sociopathic ability to you know do Yeah but that bad boy vibe is Well that's what I was wondering can you can you be sexiest man alive if the only thing you've ever been is this kind of supremely sexy arch villain you know do you have to be a hero for a while I think that makes it No easier. I think that's easier oh I think it's God, easier yeah. to that's be like bad sexy than yeah. good sexy <laughs> That's how you get to sexy <laughs> you know you can't be the good guy and actually be sexy Right You I, know then you're the good guy I also just wonder what tropes are being exploited here when they come up with these kinds of things. I guess he's the third person of color. Um, you know, there's all sorts of like really built in racial and ethnic tropes, the smoldering Latin guy, you know, and the, the you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a less offensive term, but there's like the, the black stud, right? You know, that's sort of like a horrible trope. And I just sort of wonder whether People magazine – can ever shed all that kind of stuff or whether they're trying to shed all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, when they make these choices, it, I'll tell you what I'm really saying. I'm, I'm, I'm the one digging mm-hmm. myself into a hole, I can tell. Like, you can't do this with women, women anymore, right? You can't, no. You're not supposed Mm-mm. to quantify women the way no. that they're doing this, right? No, but it's like empowering for women to <laughs> go ahead and pick the sexiest man alive. Right. But yeah, for sure, like People Magazine, they don't do sexiest woman, right? I just want to make clear that we know for a fact that it's women who picked him. We, good, good question. Actually, yeah. I, I don't, I think, I think I read. I assumed it, it was just studio execs or something. Yeah, but I, I, I don't, I don't know. I feel like I read somewhere that it was, that there were like, there were more men that pick this than women, like, you know, I on the executive so. end. Um, but yeah, I, there is not a sexiest woman alive. I think, right? I think there's a sexiest person alive. I'm being told in the notes okay. here, is, and that's usually a woman. But um, it's actually interesting that you brought the notion of tropes because it actually does tell dovetails perfectly with how we think about the next Bond or how we think about James Bond, yeah. right? He's supposed to be sort of a collection of tropes of the most like a prototypical mm-hmm. uh, primal man or something. And, you know, it should taste evolve. Like, there, there's a conversation right now about who's supposed to be next James Bond, and a lot of the conversation comes from whether you want to break those tropes or evolve it with the times. Right. And it feels like there's a conservatism of not wanting to evolve with the times. Right. So we talked about last week about the, uh, the show uh, Bodyguard and – uh, the guy who plays David Budd, the guy who played uh, Rob Stark is actually – I think the London bookies have him as as the number one shot. But th- that brings up a question whether it's Sexiest Man Alive or Bond or whatever. The, you know, I mean Henry Golding is kind of an interesting case coming out of Half crazy – Asian. Like, yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. homeboy. Yeah. yeah well, that's what I was going to say. Coming out of Crazy Rich Asians. Um, you know, I mean he's very, very bankable. I mean I thought he would have been a more – 
sort of au courant, edgy choice for Sexiest Man Alive in some ways. I mean, Idris Elba's been kind of hanging around a long time. Yeah, but Henry Golding's too new. Like, I, yeah. I, feel, I don't actually know any of his other credits other than, like, some travel channel work. Yeah, they want to, like, season, <laughs> let him season a little, make yeah. sure he's not, like, a flash in the pan. Yeah. Although it can be a big career boost. I mean, is it a career boost to become the Sexiest Man Alive? Uh, well, yeah, take a look at all the guys who are. But they and were when all... They, and when they were, take a look at how young Brad Pitt was, how young Johnny Depp was. You know, the I think some of them, some of the guys were a little bit older, like George Clooney, but for some reason, I think that George Clooney was always a little bit older. Yeah, I um, think he was born you know, a middle-aged born man, a little, yeah. <laughs> like a sexy middle-aged man, but he was definitely. I don't get the Clooney thing. I, I, oh, that's I, a hot take. <laughs> 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 All right, we're gonna be we're gonna be segueing to curving pretty soon, unless uh, we have someplace else to go. Although I do think, well, I mean, that's the real question. I think Nick, you put your finger on it. Do they want to evolve it? Uh, do they want to change it? Uh, do they want to – I mean if they're going to do something – it would be interesting to have an Asian sexiest man alive. That has not happened before. And then it, the thing that – other thing that was suggested is that increasingly, you know, I mean the, the, the essay that we read had to do with – I think the phrase was twink culture. I mean but also <laughs> this kind of notion that why does the sexiest man alive have to be – sexy in a straight way too. I mean that's another way that they could yeah. could evolve this. I, Go ahead. I'm really interested in, in that take that you had about um, uh, about breaking the, the Bond trope because I think that it's been all over the place, right? You know, and um, and I don't think that, that I'm all that clear anymore what it is and I think certainly, you know. What a that, James Bond is? Yeah, like because I think that the, the Piers Bronson – James Bond and the Daniel Craig James Bond were two totally different characters. I mean, they they just didn't seem the same. The only commonality was the gear. Right. Um, I mean, James Bond, it is it is funny when you think about, like, casting that because just the name James Bond evokes this, like, James Bond is supposed to be sexy. That's kind of – and he's smart and he – you know, he's this, like, action hero. I mean, there you know what a James Bond is, but you picture – everyone pictures a different James Bond mm-hmm, in their right. head. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes that so complicated and why it can go all over the map and why they have kind of like a, a blank, you know, it's a blank page of who they can choose from. Like it's I think so. literally anyone who fits the concept yeah. of James Bond. I mean, but like imagine this. So would Nicolas Cage be a good James Bond? No. No. Right, but why? Because uh, he's Nicolas Cage. He's too weird. He's Nicolas Cage. He has no smoothness. It's, yeah, he's, he's just he has not the suave. affect of smooth. But in the in those answers smooth. is the answer of like yeah. the the trope that's conservative. Right, that's say, what I'm saying. Yeah. You cannot say shaken, not stirred, and also say put the bunny back in the box. Uh, you know, those two. The actor who says one of those things cannot say the other thing. Um, yeah, I, I. I well, first of all, uh, I do think that with James Bond, there are real shifts in how he's perceived. And the Daniel Craig James Bond is this sort of Ibsen James mm-hmm. Bond, right? Mm-hmm. He's dark. He's pursuing his identity. He doesn't understand where did he come from, who's his mother. You know, let's go back to this old house and find out our secrets in the darkness. And I mean this is not this kind of cool debonair, I've got 99 percent of my problems solved kind of bond that we've seen mm. in the past, right? I mean, right. Like, that's sort of who Pierce Brosnan was, Roger Moore, a lot of these guys. Uh, Daniel Craig's bond has like 48% of his problems solved and the other 52 are bearing down on him pretty fast. And I wonder if that's a reflection of the time too, that you know you, you almost can't identify with somebody who has all of his problems solved. Right. I think the first Daniel Craig movie was around 2003 and I think our sort of conversations around masculinity and gender was very different back then than it is right now. Um, which is, I think, why this choice is super interesting. Like, it's it should be reflective of this epoch, but um, 
with is Idris Elba the right person for it to come back to the original uh, topic here, it, it, and whether he can embody that sort of epoch change. No, because Idris yeah. Elba never plays somebody who doesn't have problems. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is it, Idris Elba is walking around with you know all kinds of things on his back, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he, yeah. he managed to to pull off saying you know probably about ten sentences on the wire, and you knew the guy was a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> But he's the most – I mean the, the, the subplot in The Wire where he as this absolute criminal mastermind of this Baltimore drug gang goes back to community college to get his business degree. I mean I really, I really thought – and he pulled that – I didn't even understand he had an English accent until the whole thing was over. I mean he, he pulled off everything mm-hmm. about being that guy so amazingly well. Um, all right. Well, we, 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 now we have to save time for curving. Uh, so we better start talking about that. So, Carolyn, you are responsible for this topic. You, <laughs> You're you welcome. Only, you not only are responsible for this topic, but you are responsible for my having watched a clip of Hoda and Kathy Lee no, explaining why? this topic. I oh, think wow. That, that was the link that was sent around by I know, somebody. but you, I, I, you didn't have to watch that. And then I kind of went down this whole Kathy Lee rabbit hole. Well, anyway. It's a really dark place um, <laughs> to end up. So uh, you want me to explain what curving we is? Should, we should say in the history of the nose, you are the person who brought us the term ghosting a long time ago. That is true. So yes. for the benefit of people, and I'm discovering from this survey we're doing right now that people are kind of all over the map in terms of what they know and what they don't know. You better explain ghosting quickly and then how curving is different. Okay. Ghosting is when you're dating someone, uh, whether it be casually or seriously, and rather than you know, have a conversation with them to break up with them. You just ignore them and you you become a ghost. Like it's like you've died or they've died and you just disappear. Like they'll text you, they'll call you, whatever, and you just make yourself totally inaccessible and then hopefully they get the message and they're like, oh, that person's dead to me, I'll move on. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of this way of being completely uh, evasive and, and, and non-confrontational. And curving kind of falls into that same category, except it's where you, uh, like, if somebody is texting you and rather than sending back, like, rather than having a dialogue with them, you sort of just give them just enough to keep the conversation going. Uh, so if they, like, text you and tell, them, tell you all about your day, you kind of respond with, like, you know, my day was fine. And sounds like your day was good. Just kind of these very uh, sort of simple responses that the person feels fulfilled that they're getting a response. But it's not – you're just not in it. And you're probably just keeping them around because you're figuring things out. In a way, it's for people who think ghosting is too confrontational because Mm -hmm. if you're ghosting, you just cut the person off dead and it's pretty clear very quickly what you're doing. Either of these things, you're just a total jerk. Right. Like that's the bottom line. And it seems like the thing about curving, it's almost like you have a a document open next to you that you just copy and paste responses out of. Wow. Yeah, that's, 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 did I just expose yes. something? Yeah, I, think you, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Nick is ready right now to get into his whole thing about uh, texting reveals your psychological state, but you kind of just went there. That too. is a – yeah, that's a psychological state of – that's not – I'm scared for you. Well, that, no, the Apple, fact that you even came up with that. Well, iPhone has the sort of auto-completes now with the whole mm-hmm. phrases. Yes. Right. And like, that's just going to completely up this, like, curving game just a whole couple of uh-huh. notches. Yeah, Gmail does that, too. I get, yeah. I get like, emails, and it, um, it'll, it like, offer me options of just how to respond with, right. like, one click. But it's weird with the texting, too, yeah, because it'll you'll type, I am about to, and it'll say throw up or something, you know. I usually just awesome. go with that, too. <laughs> yeah. I like to just, like, throw that out there, at, you know, like, well, this is what, this is what 
what my phone says I'm doing right Rather now. Rather than make the huge mental effort to actually complete the thought on your own, just <laughs> yep. take right. whatever is offered to you by default. Mm-hmm. I just wish the technology would pick emojis for me so that I could seem <laughs> hipper. Well, actually, I think there are some fairly serious things to say about this, yeah. believe it or not. Um, and one of them is that I feel as though this is an outgrowth of the way that we live, which is a much more Orwellian kind of over-supervised world, right? I mean, it used to be that if you really weren't sure how you felt about somebody or maybe you were getting interested in somebody else or whatever, whatever leads to moments of curving and ghosting, it could go on for a really long time and you could maybe have some time to sort things out or uh, create some kind of gentle curve for this whole thing to play out. But, like, people want to know what you're doing and thinking every freaking second right now. So you have to come up with these responses or or ghost. No, you don't, actually. There's a, there's a third. There's a C option. Right. And, <laughs> and the C option is, is actually, to me, the, the resolution of the, Ar- the Orwellian conflict, right? Yeah. That, uh, that you claim your own. Um, that you can actually say, like, yeah, you know, I'm doing something else right now. Oh, and just so actually hostile. <laughs> yeah. See, th- if I got that text, just so you know, I would assume that the, what you were doing you hated was somebody Carol. else. Yeah. No, I'd assume that if you said, like, I'm doing something else right now, I'd be like, who is she? <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's also to the contrary of one of the greatest benefits of this new technology is that you can sort of manage from the time perspective your, your conversations more. Like, I don't have to. I'll continue this conversation right now. I can return to it two or three hours later. Uh, so you can just kind of nuts. file that away. That drives me nuts. That drives me bonkers. If we're in the middle of actually having a conversation, because like, like, the conversation is still a conversation to me. Maybe that's that's my age showing, right? That that for me, if I'm in the middle of texting someone and we're going back and forth, we're engaged in a conversation just like we were on the phone, just like we were in person. Right? And if they just stopped communicating midway uh, without letting me know that they're stepping away from the conversation uh, for whatever reason. I don't even need to know the reason, but that, that they're stepping away. Yeah, but away. sometimes just the quick response, though, is just as – like I understand what you're saying. Like letting the person know like, hey, I can't have a conversation right now. Mm-hmm. That's different than curving comes into play where – you know, like you're you're talking to someone, and you're like, oh, so what do you want to do this weekend? Like, what is a plan? And they're just like, don't know. Yeah, period. That would be curving. The period yeah. at the end of like a two word or one word response That's is cold. That's is cold. cold. That that period changes everything. Yeah. That period could also be I'm driving and I shouldn't be texting right now. But you have don't text, it just don't, don't text. Yeah. Well, right. see, that's my point, right? <laughs> but th- those are the things that Apple needs to provide you with. Things like, I'm sorry, my spleen just burst. Right. You know, I've got to go. Or I'm like, I occasionally will on the phone say, untruthfully, I'm being called into a meeting right now. <laughs> you know, like if I'm here at work and that's a plausible thing and I'm talking to somebody, I'll say, I'm being called into a meeting, you know, which I, might be true or it might well, not I, be true. I think I do that at parties all the time where, like, in the middle of a conversation, it has met its end, but it's unclear to the other party that it's met its end. And I'm yeah. like, oh, I got to go use the bathroom. Right. And then you walk to that general direction and then you steer away. But, but, but the problem with texting is there's, I don't know, there's, as Carolyn is suggesting, there's a little bit of an instinct, or maybe Rich was the one who, who suggested it, to just stop. Right? right? Like suddenly you just stop responding because you're not really dealing with another human being in that situation. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with, you know, code basically or something. No, you're dealing with the, the, the relationship with this other person. Like right now I have a six-month-old uh, text chain with a friend that I don't see very often about the last Drake album and it's still going. <laughs> like we haven't broken. We haven't switched topics. We, we don't continue to threat for weeks at a time, but then we do. 
it's kind of, like I think it's just a different way of taking in time and relationships on the internet. Am I the only person who, thought, who was laughing at the idea you have a six-month-old conversation, yeah, a text conversation about the last Drake album? I, it does not seem Did, strange to me. <laughs> no, I, I know that. <laughs> I know I that. can do that. I need too much closure. Yeah. It, well, I think that that's, that's the thing is that people are just afraid of closure. And that's where ghosting and curving come into, come into this, you know, the, the world that we're in. Because rather than just, you know, saying like, hey, I'm just not into you or like, let's end this. It, it's this way of kind of dancing around that and, mm. and you know, kind of living in this purgatory but this is something we've talked about before, and maybe it was the time you brought in ghosting. First of all, some kind of you have to evolve some kind of human code about what kinds of conversations are appropriate to have, you know, via text. What things you have to do face to face. I mean, you have to break up with somebody face to face, right? I mean, you have to do that, right? You can't text it or leave them a phone message or something. Well, like and that. I think no, we talked. I think awful. yeah, I, I understand that. I, I think that it depends how long you've been with the right. person. You know, if you go out on one date right. and you're like, this isn't great, yeah. you, that's definitely, like, that can be a text situation. Yes. yes. I think, like, you know, anything after, like, three dates, that should be at least a phone conversation. Anything after a month is face-to-face. There you have it. Uh, that's that's the like the, the, code, the, code, <laughs> the code of Hammurabi right here. I have a caveat to that, though. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that the caveat is if you're aware that that person is, like, super into you even after the first date, that's a phone call. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, wow. I mean, I don't, I've never had that experience. Yeah. Um, so I want to before we run out of time here. I I don't know if we've got. You said that there's this whole theory, Nick, about how you text reflects your actual psychological state. Have we gotten there yet? Or well, uh, so it's, it was actually I believe it was an article on The Verge or something like that 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 advances premise that the way you text is sort of an expression of like how your psychological state is or your personality. Like, and there's also variations on the theme here in the sense that I. I feel like I'm a different person when I'm texting than when I'm talking to somebody. I'm a, I'm a different performer in that sense. I'm a bit more robust. I take my time thinking through certain things when I do choose to engage in a text conversation. But, um, but also, like, I'm the kind of person that does not use punctuations. I'm, not the, kind, I'm the kind of person that kind of keeps everything to the caps down. And, like, it suggests, like, a, a different level of psychological engagement with this other person or with personalities in general. Right. So, and I think this came up with my new friends, uh, Kathy Lee and Hoda, Carolyn, <laughs> where, like, if, if you, if somebody writes something to you, you know, like, maybe says, you know, hey, I was just thinking about you. It was so great the last time we were together. And you send them an emoji of thumbs up. That feels like, go ahead. You that interpret feels, that one. That's, that's curving. Yeah, that's, that's curving. curving. <laughs> right. yeah, the that's, thumbs up emoji. Yeah. yeah that's, Unless you hold it so it's the really big thumbs up. Right. No, that's it. just a big curve. <laughs> now you, you're just you're just curving them on a larger scale. All right. Well, well, we we, never, we may never fully. I mean, it could be that our listeners are going to start curving us as a result of this conversation. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, I don't know what, what what's the nose for if not tackling things like this. We are going to talk about the uh, series Homecoming with Julia Roberts and others when we come back from this. One liners and you've got the curse of curves And with this gift I compose words and the question that comes forward Are you perspiring from the irony? I don't know 
know if there would be better or worse if you heard the conversations we have during the breaks. But much um, better, I think. Much better. Okay, we'll do like we should do a web extra of like everything we say during the breaks. Uh, this is the news in studio is Rich Holland, principal and design director at CoLab, a commissioner on uh, cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Carolyn Payne. It's going to take forever, but she's an actress, comedian, dancer director, choreography, choreographer, uh, and founder of Kinetic Dance. Nicholas Kwa is editor and publisher of Hot Pod, a newsletter about podcasts. Really, if you're interested in podcasts and you're not getting this newsletter, you're, you're a fool. I hate to say that, but you're a fool. How do they how, – like I just get it. I don't know how I signed up for it. How would, I, how, how would people get this? I thing? just go to hotpodnews.com Hot and then sign up for it right there. All right. Um, so I must have done that at some point in my life. Uh, is this also still on the Neiman Journalism Lab site? Yeah, it's still okay. syndicated over okay, there. Yeah. So. Um, okay, so uh, time to talk about this uh, new series. It's called uh, Homecoming, um, and it made its way over from the world of podcasting. It features uh, Julia Roberts as a uh, sort of social worker counselor of veterans. Uh, and um, uh, her most important patient is a guy named Walter Cruz. What I'm trying to think of, like how much I can say without having engaging in the support. Let's just say that this counseling program for veterans, this uh, uh, cloistered, secluded, somewhere in the Florida glades looking uh, counseling program for veterans is not exactly what it purports to be, not all that it seems to be. Let's hear a, a, a clip of Julia Roberts as Heidi Bergman and Stephen James as Walter Cruz, a returning serviceman who has served in violent times in Afghanistan. My name is Heidi Bergman, and I'm your caseworker for this reintegration process. Our facility is a safe space for you to process your military experience and re-familiarize yourself with civilian life in a monitored environment, which just means getting you situated now that you're back career-wise, health-wise. Basically, I work for you. Okay. All right, so the only, I don't want to say mandatory, but... But mandatory. Yeah, I guess the only mandatory elements are the group meals in the cafeteria, the workshops, which you'll hear about, and um, these meetings with me, which hopefully won't be too painful. Well, that sounds great. I, I want to be in compliance with all this. Compliance? Wow. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I know why I'm here. You know, other guys, they came home and they got really amped and just dove right into everything, and then and they had problems. I don't want to end up like them, but I'm eager. Eager for what? Just like a life, busy, clean life. I don't want to pollute things here with my problems, my stress or whatever. So I just I want to put it all behind me. So, Nick, maybe you can begin by just sort of educating people a little bit about what this thing started out as, how it made the jump from podcast to prestige TV, as they say. Right. So um, th this TV version of Homecoming is an adaptation of a podcast uh, by Gimlet Media, which is the same shop behind stuff like Reply All and Startup. Um, and it was one of, and it was their first major fiction project. It was a project written by Michael Bloomberg and Eli Horowitz, and it actually packed a really sort of you know, Hollywood star-studded lineup. Um, Oscar Isaac played the the lead role of Walter Cruz, and Catherine Keener took the role of Heidi Bergman, and it largely followed the same plot. Um, and it was sort of structured as an experimental uh, a fiction podcast. Um, it played around with narration in a really interesting way. It played with sound, with sound design in a really interesting way. Um, and it ended up being one of Gimlet's more popular podcasts. It was one of their more high-profile pickups for a Hollywood adaptation. Um, and this is their second podcast, a TV um, project, the first being uh, Alex Inc., a now sort of canceled sitcom starring Zach Braff, um, 
And this, I think, is probably the more fully realized adaptation uh, of of one of their original podcast projects. Um, the the fiction podcast was great. I thought it was it was super interesting. I also found it a little bit too disjointed in terms of the actual experience. The plot was a little difficult to communicate um, in within the flow of the experience. Um, and it, on sort of watching the TV version and going back to the first season, really sort of unspooled. The just how different these the mediums are in telling the exact same story or something like it, uh, but also the nature of just you know dispensing information. And I thought that was a really interesting divide between the two projects. Right, and I think uh, Eli Horowitz in particular is sort of um, one of the uh, leading edges of dispensing information in unusual ways. We had him on the show uh, quite a long time ago because of a novel called The Silent History that he was involved in, which was a released. It was a novel that was released, I believe, as an app originally, and eventually came out as a regular book. That's a little bit of the sort of the same progress uh, of Homecoming in the sense that it was released in a much more novel, unusual form as a podcast, and now is a pretty conventional TV series. Although there are things about it that are unconventional as well. So I uh, just want to maybe sort of get some reactions uh, from this. Carolyn, we'll go over there. We'll, we'll start with you. Uh, I already know sort of how you're feeling about this series. Yeah, I mean, so it's yet another thing I've watched with the nose that I don't. So this falls, usually things for the nose have two categories for me. I like hated it and I'm mad about it. Or, um, you know, it was fine and uh, like I'm not, I might not recommend it to everyone I know, but it was fine. So this kind of fell into, I guess, good for it, the category of it being, you know, fine. Um, I didn't think it was great. Like I, it wasn't earth shattering to me. Um, I didn't know until like we got into this discussion that it was based on this podcast and I googled the podcast when I found out Catherine Keener had done it in the podcast I was uh really confused why they didn't cast her in this other than Julia Roberts being this big name to bring into a project especially an actress who's never really done television other than those uh like Dior commercials or whatever <laughs> she does um <laughs> but I, I so I felt Julia Roberts was Kind of, I, I felt like the her performance or the direction of her performance was something was off, and I didn't know if that was intentional. Like you know, like so many things in this show, there's a lot there to kind of make you feel uncomfortable and ill at ease, and just the nature of the show. And Julia Roberts' performance was one of the things that put you ill at ease. Um, and there's a lot of like choices, like we talked about the camera work that you get that fisheye lens where things are blurry. Uh, I'm seeing this as kind of a new trend that I'm like not on board with anything that makes me it just it kind of some parts of this just almost make you like nauseous or seasick. And they, they, they shrink the frame down. Well, that a... I actually, as I said in email, when the frame shrinks to show the passage of time, I thought because I got a new TV recently, I thought I had like leaned on the remote and like changed the <laughs> setting. And I legit spent 10 minutes trying to fix my television right. before I realized what was happening. And then I was just so so embarrassed. Right. Do not adjust your TV, yeah. as you used to say, if you're watching uh, uh, Homecoming. Uh, Rich, there's, how did it land for you? So there's a lot right about this and a lot wrong. And um, uh, the stuff that's really right is the storytelling. It's it's It leans out of uh, a genre that I've always just kind of been intrigued by. Um, it's the stuff that was going on in the uh, in the uh, mid to late seventies into into the eighties, um, and and then got started to get remade. Uh, it reminds me of the um, uh, the invasion of the body snatchers 
where you think you actually have an understanding of society until you peel away and start to see what's underneath it. Uh, it then takes a, a sort of sci-fi turn in the in the instance of body snatchers. Um, uh, but there's always something else underneath everything that you're that you're watching, and that element I find kind of interesting and it keeps me hooked, right? But there are some uh, some directorial choices here that are just really irritating. So Nick and I, we had, I think, kind of opposite reactions, which is uh, I think you're pretty happy with the transfer yeah. of this thing uh, to TV. I also discovered it as a podcast, um, loved the podcast. And, and I feel as though this whole process of watching this transfer has educated me a little bit about what it is I like about the auditorium medium, how incredibly um, intimate it can be, whether you're listening to a, an audio book or uh, listening to a podcast like this one, how much your imagination begins to basically decorate the stage. Um, and, and so one of the things that happens in the original podcast is that the, a lot of the communication between two of the key characters, played by Catherine Keener and David Schwimmer, uh, is a series of phone calls. And one of the things that they've tried to preserve is the weird intimacy and distance, we're sort of back to curving almost, of those phone calls. So let's hear it. Now it's Bobby Cannavale and Julia Roberts as these characters. Um, Bobby Cannavale plays a, a guy named Colin Belfast, who's, uh, who's the boss uh, of Heidi Bergman, Julia Roberts' character, and kind of a weasel, but, um, but also living this kind of complicated life that's sort of parallel to the, the narrative of most of the series. Well, anyway, I'm at the new laboratory. Um, how does it look over there? Everything's up and running. You can have a totally consistent supply now. That's great. You can just focus on working with the guys. And it's the same medication? There's yeah, no change? Well, let's not throw that word around the facility, okay? Now that the guys have moved in, we should be, you know, discreet. Right, okay. Hey, how's it all going there? Well... Yeah, I know an office building isn't the ideal clinical environment. Oh, no, it's, it's fine. The staff has really been helpful, and we've got all the office stuff out of the way. Yeah, and the decor, hiding the vibe. I told them we want hip but masculine. Right. How's that looking? Uh, it looks good, yeah. The decorator did a great job. Okay, perfect. You know, we're going to be in a more legitimate setting as soon as we have some results. Right, well, actually, the guys don't seem to mind. Yeah, okay, uh, but you understand the urgency here, right? We need the data. That's the key. Of course. We've got that presentation at the DOD in six weeks. We need to have everything squared away by then. Understood? Understood. All right. So, Nick, both of us love things on audio. I, I, I thought one of the great things about the podcast was there's a lot of lying and manipulation and deceit. And as we just suggested in the previous section, segment about curving, phones are a great way to lie to people because <laughs> 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 they can't look at you. So I was actually sort of distracted by being able to look at both of them sometimes in a split screen. Right. It's interesting because like it comes back to the notion of how like what information was being held and what the differences between the differences are between the two medium. Um, when it was in the podcast, you really did not know the context of the Colin Belfast character. It was just you just hear the crackle end of the phone. You kind of trying to interpret lies or deceit through the tone of voice. But in the television show, it literally goes down to a split screen. They retain that crackly sound, but you can actually see Colin doing whatever he's doing on the other end, and you can see when he's physically lying and, and what he's trying to do and what he's doing instead. And that ends up being a super interesting split between the two the two the two projects. But the other thing that kind of that really stood out when I'm thinking about both of these uh, these projects essentially is how the podcast was really breaking and pushing new ground for how to think about the structure of the narrative, 
on how to present fiction in a really different way or, or a new way um, compared to fiction podcasts of the past, which tended to draw a lot from analogs of like, this is a fake public radio reporter doing something. It's pretty spooky. But with the TV show, it was essentially a bundle of homages. Um, it it's borrows intensely from visual language of Hitchcock. It borrows intensely from the visual language of the movies from the 70s that Rich was talking about, um, All the President's Men, mm-hmm. you know, the conversation of Gene Hackman. And also it comes down to the score, right? Like he, um, Sam Esmail, who, who executive produced and directed and wrote a good chunk of the show, really just cops a lot of music just from um, all of the homages of the past straight onto the, the episodes and to evoke certain feelings from that. And so it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of wild to, to see the two contexts of the same products there. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of Mindhunter on Netflix, which also I think is a very, uh, a thing that kind of devours the previous culture. And it's like a David Fincher thing and he loves to do that. You know, we, we can't leave this uh, or run out of time, Carolyn, without talking about the fact that, yes, they probably paid a lot of money to get Julia Roberts or somehow or other got Julia Roberts I- interested in this and then kind of un-Julia roberts her as much as possible. Yeah. I, I mean, what's interesting to me in this is Julia Roberts. So, you know, she's known for that, like, radiant smile. Mm. And this is, like, a role where that smile should definitely not be used or used very sparingly and very specifically. So you have, like, Julia Roberts kind of minus what makes Julia Roberts Julia Roberts. And they've really, like, roughed her up in this. And they've given her lighting that is consistently unflattering. Like, it's, like, literally, like, they were like, let's find the worst possible lighting to put this woman in. Oh, nope, she still looks too pretty. Okay, there it is. That's, like, what I felt was happening there on set. And I think, like, by trying to like take her out of that context of being this like you know that this beautiful woman with this like radiant smile and like getting her down stripping I think she's an incredibly talented actress and that's not that wasn't the problem for me with her in this role I mean I think her hair looks awful in this like I yeah. think they did not need to make her look like I, I don't know I, I think they well Richa though I think they did that really very intentionally let's make so. her look as awful Absolutely. as possible right. and but, there's, there's this one amazing sequence where she goes to a makeup counter because she's at least thinking about impressing a certain man in the cast and she gets a little sort of department store makeover and gets in her car and looks at herself in the mirror and she doesn't really look any better she looks kind of tarted up in a kind of the wrong way <laughs> and then just starts wiping it all off you know which I thought was sort of a little bit of a metaphor for how Ju- how Julia Roberts is being used here well it's so uh, i think that that's the thing that's it, it's hard to have a conversation of about Julia Roberts and uh and still hold on to Julia Roberts as pretty woman right mm-hmm. i mean she's she's not uh you know that age any longer you know, and and I think that um, that she seems liberated from that to me. You know that she gets to to play another edge of of who she is and isn't trapped in in the the role of um, you know of of having to to perform to having these to male beautiful. ideologies, having to be the sexiest woman. But in the what world. I was wondering was, did they, did she, and the production design, did they like go? too far to like was it I, I just wonder whether she was like far enough. I think I looked at just about every shot of her and I understand that they're trying I didn't see that they were making her look unattractive I 
felt that they were making her look serious. Well, I don't know. I, I Actually, and Nick, this is part of the problem with having somebody who's kind of iconic, which I think is mm-hmm. a fair adjective for Julia Roberts, because I was distracted by, oh, they found another way to make Julia Roberts look kind of drab and goofy. <laughs> and, you know, that was sort of like, that was like sort of a tertiary narrative right. that was going on for me. And you don't want that, right? You want to just be drawn into the, the storytelling. Yeah, but I mean, I, that would be, I mean, naturally, if for any other production, that would be my default mode. But there's something about this production in specific with Sam Esmail being so specific in his choices and very, very close, uh, closely observing homages. There is a reason that he casted Julia Roberts and then brought in Dilma Baroni, her partner, uh, her scene partner in My Best Friend's Wedding, <laughs> and like completed that union that was never really like consummated in that in that movie. And that choice, like, there's this meta element where I go, like, there's something about this production that really wants to speak towards a meta level. And I, I kind of help that there's something that's trying to be I did get committed. a chuckle when, because I hadn't really researched, <laughs> and when, you know, that first scene where they're, you know, sitting there together, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is cute. This is like what would have happened if she had managed to break up that wedding. Yeah. This dismal scene. <laughs> yeah. All right. We have to take a little break right now. We have to break up this conversation. We'll come back with some recommendations and endorsements. And we are back. It's, i got to do some thank yous because uh, Wolfie had to leave today. So actually, it's easy to do the credits because I think Jonathan McPants and I are the whole thing uh, here. Uh, Betsy Kaplan uh, and, uh, and Kion Wolf both had to go off and do other things today. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Shea Wiggum, the terrific uh, character actor who's also in Homecoming. I, I wanted to at least shout him out somehow. He's just he's so amazingly good. Uh, on Monday, we're going to be back with a show based on the weekend's news. The stories we're following right now, of course – uh, life in America post Jeff Sessions, uh, what is it going to turn into? Also, what are the rules for a White House press conference? It's hard when the president doesn't have very many of them. Uh, and apparently there are rules, but nobody knows what they are. All right. So uh, we're going to make some endorsements, some recommendations. Why don't we start with Nicholas Qua? What have you got for us? Uh, I've got one podcast and one non-podcast recommendation. The podcast would be, I'm really enjoying the new season of ESPN's 30 for 30 uh, podcast, um, particularly the first two episodes of the new season. The first is about Jose Canseco's uh, memoir, Juiced, about his um, mm-hmm. extravagant adventures with steroids. And the second is about uh, that sort of poker boom of 2003, which I have very little interest in. But it's it's fascinating how a confluence of factors, including the movie Rounders and online poker, uh, got us to this moment where uh, poker is a huge cultural thing in, in many parts of the country. Can you follow it if you don't know anything about poker? Like, I don't you even can, know You can, absolutely. And I, neither do I, apparently. Um, and the non-podcast recommendation, I just want a quick shout-out to East York Brewery, which just opened up in my neighborhood. It's uh, it's my, my new go-to spot, and uh, I love it so much. Okay, East Rock Brewery and the 30 for 30 podcast. Uh, Rich Holland, uh, what have you got for us? I got two quick ones. Um, one, there is a, a, a building in Parkville. It's 1429 Park. If you stay on the first floor of that building, dear God, don't go to the second floor. If you stay on the first floor of that building, uh, it's this really weird strip mall of oddities uh, that's been collected there, and you'll have a blast. Uh, there's Hog River Brewery, um, which is uh, which has a Thursday twang night, um, and you can throw an axe at a, this mm-hmm. axe-throwing place. Wow. And across is this place called the Curis- Curisorium. 
uh, where this person has just this odd collection of things that he curates and sells, and it's an experience all on its own. So get into uh, – So drinking at the brewery, then you go to the axe throwing place after you've had some beers, mm-hmm. and then you – And then go – yeah, go buy some skulls. So in Hartford, 1429 yes. – it sounds like Valencia Street in San Francisco. It's yes, like all it does. It's packed into one 1429 yeah. Park Street in – Hartford. Yeah. All right. What have you got, Carolyn? All right. Well, it's funny because I was also going to endorse a brewery. Everyone named a brewery. Oh, Labyrinth nice. Brewing in Manchester is really, uh, really good. And I'm not really a beer girl. Like I'm kind of more of a like wine and gin kind of drinker. But um, good. This is good beer and um, definitely worth checking out. They have a really cool space. And also um, the Amazon Prime series, The Romanoffs. I got into. And uh, I know Jonathan's going to be so happy that I'm squeezing this in. So Homecoming is half-hour episodes, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Romanoffs is a show I like despite the fact that they are hour-and-a-half-long episodes. <laughs> they are like full little movies. But it's a good show. It's really interesting. It's worth checking out. I was reading in the New York Times, uh, apropos of the Romanoffs, about Diane Lane's beauty regimen. And I realized that this She does look really good. Yeah. But I think she's lost her mind because that's what they do to actresses. <laughs> Like, really, she sounded like a crazy person. I'm sure she's completely sane, but, like, the stuff that they make you do to be a viable actress, you know, in Hollywood after a certain I just watched the Diane Lane episode, and I was shocked at how – I was like, wow, she's really holding up. Right. So if you want to just laugh at something really quick quick and stupid, um, uh, go on YouTube. Look for MLB, A Bad Lip Reading. So this is part of the Bad Lip Reading series, which is a very, very funny series. I also recommend the Sucka – the Sucka – the Sarah Huckabee. <laughs> Although Sucka would be just a good, uh, that, that's a good portmanteau, like, you know, Brangelina or something. Sucka, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders one. The MLB one is just hilarious. What they do is they, they take actual footage of people and they, they do read their lips and then pair up uh, nonsensical or semi-nonsensical things uh, with what they're saying. And it's really, really funny. At least I, I may be just really easily amused. Uh, that's the other possibility. Um, also, the work of the um, Irish detective writer Tana French, if you've never tackled any of it, it's terrific. Uh, she's got a new book out right, right now called The Witch Elm, which I think got uh, page one of the New York Times book review a, a few weeks ago. It is terrific. Um, and it's a little bit different from most of her, from all of her other books. All of her, all of her other books kind of originate from this Dublin murder squad, these uh, police detectives who investigate murders. This is about somebody who's being investigated by the Dublin murder squad. So we've kind of never seen that before. And then I'll just quickly say, tonight I'm going to go see Elvis Costello perform in Wallingford. Um, and just making a little playlist to get ready, which, you know, is the thing we do now. I'm just amazed at this guy's catalog, you know, and how far and wide it goes from jazz and Rogers and Hart tunes to performances with the Brodsky Quartet to beautiful songs that he wrote for Reuben Blades to sing to, you know, bump it up. So um, the work of Elvis Costello. And really what you could do if you're on whatever your streaming service you're on, if you're on one, just, you know, get on his page and just pick the 20 that you like the most. I mean, he's been writing and performing for so long and he's unbelievably prolific. Now, the truth is not everything – there's like 
you know, a fifth of his work he never should have published or recorded or <laughs> whatever. But you can pick 20 or 30 songs that are just terrific and that will be the ones that truly please you. So uh, speaking of being a true pleasure to be with, I want to thank Rich Holland uh, from CoLab, Commissioner on Cultural Affairs for the City of Hartford, Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, uh, choreographer, everything else. And Nicholas Quay, you got to get on Hot Pod. That's his new letter, newsletter about the podcasting industry. If you like podcasts and you are not, reading Hot Pod. You are not really keeping up with the thing that you like so much. All right. We'll be back on Monday. Thanks to Jonathan McPants and anybody else I forgot to thank. Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.